Uh, Lord God, we praise you and thank you for who you are, uh, that you are uh, the God of majesty. Uh, you, you are holy. Uh, you are good. Uh, you are awesome. Uh, we thank you that you are great, that you are greatly to be praised. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to praise you, to enjoy fellowship with you. And we pray here this morning as we open up your word that we would hear very clearly that you are speaking to us, inviting us into a relationship with you. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work here among us today. Uh, we ask that you would do wonderful things in our hearts here today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, will you please be seated? Uh, and as you sit, uh, do uh, keep your bulletins open, or uh, better yet, turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 9. H.L. Mencken uh, once referred to it as the mother-in-law whose visit never comes to an end. Uh, that was his uh, way of referring to his conscience. Uh, it's like the mother-in-law whose visit never comes to an end. By that, I, I assume that uh, he meant uh, that all of us have a voice within us that makes us feel like uh, we're constantly being judged or we're constantly not getting things right as we should, and so it puts us on edge that his conscience was like that. Now, I suspect the idea of a God-given conscience is not a very popular idea anymore in our cultural, current cultural climate, much like the idea of guilt is no longer a popular idea among many people today. But the biblical truth is that there is such a thing as real guilt because there's a real moral standard that God has given and thus, when we don't live according to that standard, there's a real objective guilt of which our conscience convicts us. Now, maybe that we try to ignore our conscience, uh, or maybe that we try to reshape our conscience so that it no longer adheres to God's moral standards. But what's absolutely true of every human being, and which can't be escaped, is that inner voice. Uh, that, that inner knowledge, that inner moral barometer that says to us, we are guilty. I have done things that are wrong, and therefore I am not the person who I should be. And friends, this is an Im immensely important issue because the state of our conscience deeply impacts our relationship with God. And so as we, we come to God's word this morning, my hope and prayer is that all of us here today will believe the good news of Hebrews 9, that because of Jesus, you and I really and truly can have a clean conscience before God. So again, you're going to want to have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 9. Now, last week, uh, we were introduced in Hebrews chapter 8 to the idea that the, the tabernacle and priests and sacrifices of the Old Testament uh, were themselves 
shadows and copies of heavenly realities that have now been fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus Christ in that new covenant ministry that we thought about last week. And so at the end of chapter 8, we were told quite clearly that, that now that Jesus has come, the things of the old covenant are obsolete and have passed away. And so as we come to chapter 9 this morning, the author of this letter is trying to help us better understand this idea and to understand the implications of it for our lives, namely that we need to make sure that we're putting all of our hope and all of our trust in Jesus as our true high priest. And so as we come to these verses here today, let's think about these things under three headings. Uh, We want to consider, one, what it is that the Old Testament regulations for worship are meant to teach us. Two, what it is that Jesus has accomplished for us. And then three, what it means for our lives and for our relationship with God. So first of all, let's consider what it is that the Old Testament regulations for worship are meant to teach us. Because that's the point of what the author is doing in the first ten verses of this chapter. You can see the way he introduces us to this there in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant, that is that old covenant, had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, from there, he's going to describe for us some of what those regulations for worship were and what the tabernacle, or as he refers to it here, here, that that earthly place of holiness was like. And so uh, you can see there in verses 2 to 5, he describes the layout of the intersections of the tabernacle. And then in verses 6 and 7, he describes the ministry of the priests within the tabernacle. And then in verse 8, he tells us the purpose of it all. So look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Now, that word symbolic is, is literally the word parable. And so what he's saying is that for us in the present age, as we look back on all of those Old Testament regulations for worship, and as we look back on the layout of the tabernacle, all of that is meant to be a parable for us today. In other words, it's illustrating for us deeper spiritual realities. And according to verse 8, one of the primary things it illustrates for us, and and that the Holy Spirit himself is teaching us through it, is that the way into the very presence of God, the way into the holy places, was not yet opened in that old covenant age before Jesus. You see that there in verse 8? That's the critical point. And so when we look at those Old Testament sacrifices and the ministry of the priest and the layout of the tabernacle, all of that is teaching us something very profound about the holiness of God and about how our sin, of which our conscience convicts us, keeps us out of fellowship with God. And so our author here is telling us to look at these matters carefully in order to see how the Holy Spirit is teaching us these things through this this picture illustration, this parable. And so that's what he does. Uh, And again, he begins there in in verses 2 to 5 by giving us the layout of the tabernacle. So verse 2. For a tent, that is the tabernacle, was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. 
Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. This is the author says here, there's not time to get into all the details of the tabernacle and to think about all the symbolic meaning involved, but but he does want us to see the main point. Namely, that there there were two sections within the tabernacle. Uh, The first section was known as the holy place. Uh, The second section, which was the innermost part of the tabernacle, was known as the most holy place, or as it's sometimes called, the holy of holies. And there was a massive curtain that separated those two sections. And in fact, while he doesn't mention it here, it's inferred, there was also a curtain that separated the holy place from the outer section of the tabernacle. Okay, so in the layout of the tabernacle, then, you had had the outer courtyard from which a priest could pass through the first curtain and enter into the holy place, where then you you would find the second curtain that blocked off the most holy place. Now, when the priest entered into the first section, the holy place, that's where the golden lampstand was placed, which had seven lamps that were kept lit day and night. Uh, There's also, uh, that's also where the table on which the bread of presence, or is it sometimes called the the showbread, was to be found. Uh, There were 12 loaves of bread placed on the table, which were arranged in two rows of six, each of which was replaced every Sabbath day with freshly baked loaves. Now, in describing the furniture of the tabernacle here, people have wondered why the author says that the uh, golden altar of incense was behind the second curtain. Because after all, we know from the the book of Exodus that the altar of incense was actually in the holy place, not the most holy place. And so we might read this and, and, and wonder, well, why does the author of Hebrews here say that it's behind the second curtain? Well, I don't think it's because he just got his facts mixed up. I mean, throughout the book of Hebrews, we've seen and we will see that the author of this letter is very familiar with the Old Testament. So I don't think it's that he got his facts mixed up. I think the reason for it is probably because even though the actual placement of the altar of incense was in the holy place, the actual incense itself was such a critical part of the annual ministry that took place within the most holy place as the smoke of the incense that was burned would would fill the most holy place and it would cover the Ark of the Covenant, thus shielding the high priest from the presence of God when he entered into that most holy place once a year. And so the altar of incense was placed as close as it could be to the most holy place without actually being in it, thus allowing uh, the other priests, uh, you can think of people maybe like Zechariah uh, in the New Testament, uh, who wasn't a high priest, but he was a, a priest who would go in and he would have that, that privilege of being able to, uh, to, to light uh, the incense there and to burn the incense on a regular basis. Now, in terms of the furniture inside the most holy place, uh, there was the Ark of the Covenant, in which were placed three things that are mentioned here. The manna from the wilderness, Aaron's staff, and the tablets of the covenant, that is God's law, that were given to the Israelites through Moses. And then overlaying that was the mercy seat on which were two cherubim. It might be helpful just kind of get a, a, a mental layout of what the tabernacle looked like. We're going we're to keep coming back to the tabernacle for several weeks as we make our way through Hebrews uh, chapter 10. But it might be helpful just kind of have a mental layout, right? So, you know, think you have, you have the outer courtyard of the tabernacle. 
uh, in which you have the, uh, the altar there uh, for burnt sacrifices. That's where all the, the sacrifices were made. And then you had the wash basin where the, uh, the priest could wash up. And then uh, the, the priest would enter through that first curtain into uh, the holy place. And on his right, there would be a, a table there for the showbread. On his uh, left, there would be uh, the lampstand. And then immediately before him, there would be the golden altar of incense right in front of that, that massive curtain. If it was the high priest on the Day of Atonement, then he would walk through that curtain and he would walk into the most holy place and it would be filled with incense, the, the smoke of the incense, covering the Ark of the Covenant that would have been there. And while all of this may seem a little bit foreign to us today, again, the author of Hebrews is telling us here it's a parable. Uh, it's a parable teaching us about the holiness of God and about human sin. It's also a parable teaching us about the, the covenant faithfulness of God despite our sin. Uh, part of the symbolic sig significance here in all of this is that God faithfully provides for his people. Uh, he gives them light. He gives them bread. He sent down manna from heaven. He raised up leaders like Aaron to minister to the people. And he's given them his law. And so God is, God is very faithful to his covenant commitments. That's, that's part of what's being communicated here. But what's also communicated in all of this is that God is a God who's perfectly holy and glorious. And for example, when we're told that above the mercy seat there are cherubim of glory, that's not saying that the cherubim themselves are glorious. Uh, it's to say that between those two cherubim is the very glorious presence of God represented in that Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of it. And so precisely because God is so glorious and holy, because of our sinful rejection of his law, he therefore must show us mercy if we're ever to be in relationship with him. And so this language of the mercy seat is actually the biblical language of propitiation. Uh, it's the language of having to have God's holy judgment against our sin turned away from us through the offering of a sacrifice, which is exactly what the ministry of the Old Testament priest was all about. And so that's where the author goes next, beginning at verse 6. Look at verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made... The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. That is the ritual duties of laying out the, the bread of the presence and, and lighting the lampstand and burning the incense. Verse 7, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of his people. And so... You can see the emphasis there. The, the, only one man gets to go into the most holy place. And only he gets to go once a year. And he can't go in on his own. He has no right to be there on his own. He must go with the blood of another. And even that blood then, it only covers the unintentional sins of the people. Uh, in the law, there was no provision for premeditated sins. He's got to have the blood of another simply to cover the unintentional sins of the people. And that's what the Day of, of Atonement was all about. Uh, once a year, one man, the high priest, could enter into the presence of God and he could only do so with the appropriate sacrifices being made. Uh, first, a bull was offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the high priest. Uh, then a goat was killed for a sin offering for the people. 
And then on the head of a second goat, the high priest would place his hands and confess the sins of the people, and then that goat would be sent off into the wilderness, symbolically conveying that the guilt of their sins was removed. And again, what Hebrews is telling us is that all of this is an illustration. It's a parable. And so you and I need to learn from it. We need to learn what the Israelites of old would have learned from it. You know, consider that in the most dramatic fashion, the people of the Old Testament were being very clearly told that the way into the presence of God was closed to them because of their sinfulness, which separated them from their creator. And that it was only through the blood of a sacrifice in their place that they could even hope to find mercy and forgiveness. That's what was being communicated day after day. Every time they looked at the tabernacle, it was made very clear that there was no way they were getting into the presence of God. The most holy place was completely cut off except a one man, one day a year, who needed the blood of another to even get in. You do not have access to God. That was the message. Now, despite all the sacrifices, the reason that a limited access remained was because all of those Old Testament regulations for worship were merely external. Now look at verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body. The body, that is, in contrast to the, to the inner soul, the, the conscience. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, the time of Reformation is a reference to the time when Jesus came. But before then, you see, the reason that access to God wasn't possible was because none of those sacrifices, and none of those regulations for worship, as elaborate as they were, could actually deal with the guilt of our sins which is why the, the sacrifices had to be continually made. But what that meant then ultimately is that there, there was no such thing as a, a clean, pure, clear conscience before God. I mean, a sacrifice would be made and maybe, maybe you celebrate that in the moment. You, you give thanks to God for his mercy. But you see, it wouldn't take long before the presence of sin would make your conscience once again uneasy. And thus you, you were always looking to the next sacrifice. You're always looking to get that next sacrifice ready because the guilt of your sin and the sins that you would commit in the future were, were never fully atoned for. There, there was no complete redemption under the old covenant. And so friends, again, as you consider those Old Testament regulations for worship, as you, as you look at that earthly place of holiness, the tabernacle, it's a parable. And friends, think about, think about what it reveals about God, that he's given us this parable. I mean, friends, how kind and patient God is to have provided all of these illustrations in order to help us understand who we really are and who he really is, and thus what's necessary for us to be in fellowship with him. I mean, he's worked painstakingly through the years with his people to bring us to a fuller understanding of these deeper spiritual realities. He's very kind. He's very patient. And it's all part of God's wonderful eternal plan, which is all ultimately meant to help us grasp who Jesus is 
and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so secondly, this morning, we we need to see exactly what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. And let's look at verses 11 to 14 again. Uh, I'm going to read these for us. And as you listen to these verses, think about the contrasts that are being drawn from what we were just thinking about in terms of the Old Testament. And also how all of those old regulations for worship were a parable pointing us to Jesus and his work on the cross. So look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, so not an earthly place of holiness, but a a heavenly tabernacle, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, okay, that external body flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he was a perfect sacrifice, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so do you you see from all of what we were just thinking about in the first 10 verses, how all that helps us to to better understand now the nature of Jesus' work on the cross. And yet at the same time, do you see how his work is vastly superior to that of the old? Uh, Jesus is a superior high priest who's entered a superior tabernacle, the, the tabernacle in heaven, and offered a superior sacrifice himself and his own blood which has accomplished a superior result, an eternal redemption leading to a purified conscience. And so whereas under the old covenant, access to God was limited, because of Jesus, the way to God has now been opened, you see. And whereas under the old covenant, everything remained external, sacrifices and and washings and blood that just cleanse the outside, what Jesus has accomplished through the perfect sacrifice of himself is a complete inner cleansing of our conscience. Now the question is, well, how is Jesus' sacrifice able to accomplish that in a way that the Old Testament sacrifices never could? Well, the answer is because his sacrifice did what no Old Testament sacrifice could ever do. And that's fully pay the penalty for our sin, right? Because what keeps us out of God's presence isn't just simply that we, that we feel bad in our conscience about things that we've done. It's not just that we feel bad, and that's what keeps us out of fellowship with God. Ultimately, what keeps us out of fellowship with God is that we have real sin that needs to be paid for, that there is justice that needs to be served, and yet Christ has fully paid the penalty for our sin. And so verse 12 describes for us that what Jesus has done through his blood is to secure for us, what does it say there? An eternal redemption. Now, to speak of redemption means to to, to speak of being set free. Sin has the the devastating effect of bringing the severest consequences into our lives. 
It dehumanizes us. It enslaves us. It, it keeps us out of God's presence. And so what sin does is it, is it puts us in shackles and chains because we're guilty. And therefore, we need to be freed. We need to be redeemed from that very real guilt. And that's exactly what Jesus has done through the shedding of his blood on the cross. He paid the full penalty for our sin. He bore the guilt of our sin so that we would no longer be considered guilty. And he's such a superior high priest who's entered into such a superior tabernacle with such a superior sacrifice that he's secured for us and eternal redemption. So listen, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you have been set free from the guilt and consequences of your sin forever. Jesus has secured for you an eternal redemption. Now that's what I've been personally meditating on in this passage. I mean, there's so many things that are not secure about life. Family, money, health, you know, whatever it may be. But this is secure. He secured for us an eternal redemption. And therefore, Christian, when you stand before God, you see your, your conscience then is fully purified. Right? All of those, those dead works that have been a part of your life, you know, things like pride and self-pity and and bitterness, and lust, and envy, and jealousy, and covetousness, and apathy, and, and fear, all of those, those kind of dead works, your conscience is now cleansed of them. Because there is no more condemnation for you. There is no more guilt that you must bear before God, because Jesus has done it all. And so yes, we still sin. And therefore, we need to still regularly confess that sin to God so we can live in the reality of having a purified conscience. But because of Jesus, we have the greatest privilege there is of being able to enter into the presence of God. That dividing curtain has been torn down. That way has been opened and Jesus is the way. And so we can now enter into the presence of God, not with a conscience that nags us and tells us we have no right to be there, but with a conscience that's purified and clean because of Jesus. He has taken all of our real deserved guilt and redeemed us. And friend, no matter who you are, I don't care if this is maybe the first time you've ever even attended a church service. No matter who you are, there's no greater need any of us have than this. Now, this is the basic human problem for every person throughout history. Uh, times may change, cultures may change, technology may change, but this basic problem doesn't change. Uh, we're human beings, and we have consciences that witness to our sinfulness with testimonies of real guilt. And deep down, we know that what keeps us away from the living God, notice that's how verse 14 describes him. Uh, he's the living God. Right, Because you can construct a false god in your imagination who exists for the sole purpose of affirming you no matter what. But it's the living God with whom you need to be concerned. And so deep down, we know that what keeps us away from the living God isn't dirty hands or dirty clothes or distance from an altar or a priest. 
No, deep down we know that what keeps us away from the living God is real sin echoing endlessly in a condemning conscience. We know that we're not good enough to come into God's presence. Because apart from Jesus' blood, our consciences rightly condemn us and make us feel separated from God. Because apart from Jesus, we are guilty. And friends, we, we can try every way we can think of to assuage that guilt we feel. And indeed, throughout history, human beings have seemingly tried everything to assuage their guilt. Uh, we can mutilate ourselves. We can burn our children in the sacred fire. We can give away all of our money to charitable causes. We can serve at the Bowery Mission. Uh, we can lock ourselves away in a monastery. We can say 50 Hail Marys. We can go to church on a Sunday morning. We can attend a community group. We can tithe. We can make New Year's resolutions. Uh, we can try to lie to ourselves that there's no such thing as real guilt. Uh, we can determine to do something meaningful with our lives. We can think, we're going to really make my life count, and, and, and that'll do something about this guilt, this guilt that I feel. Uh, we can cry. We can swear we'll do better next time. We can do all of those external things and more, and we can do them a million times over. But the result will always be the same. The stain of sin and guilt will remain within and continue to nag at us. I mean, think, for example, of what is perhaps the most famous literary example of this. Right, Shakespeare, Lady Macbeth. You know, remember the scene in which one of the chambermaids and the doctor are watching Lady Macbeth and she's, she's rubbing her hands together? The doctor inquires as to how long she's been doing this and the chambermaid reveals that she's uh, seen her doing this frequently. And as they watch, Lady Macbeth, she looks into her hand and she says, yes, here's a spot. The doctor then takes out his little book and he says, I'll write this down so that when I go away, I'll be able to analyze this and see what's really amiss. And there's Lady Macbeth and she's, she's rubbing at her hands and she, she says these famous words, out damn spot, out I say. Here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And friends, such is the case for all of us. Innumerable blots on the conscience of every one of us. This room, no doubt, is filled with Lady Macbeths, desperately trying to get the spot out, desperately trying to quiet our conscience because we're all guilty. And maybe it's as you're lying in your bed in the middle of the night, or as you're reflecting on your past and the things that you've done, the things that you've said, the things that you've thought. Maybe it's then that your conscience presses upon you the very real guilt that is yours. And we know that we often try to fool ourselves. We, we know that there's no way for us to get that spot out on our own. There's no sweet-smelling perfume in all the world that will cover up the stench, dear friend, of your sin. You know, this morning... <clears throat> uh, is the 50th anniversary of uh, the Roe versus Wade decision. Uh, we should give thanks that an evil decision like that has been overturned. But it may be that you're here this morning 
and you've had an abortion in your past. And the, and the guilt and the weight of that is so significant for you. I mean, you talk to women who have had abortions, and it's a guilt that they cannot shake. It's, it's like this massive blot on their conscience they can't get rid of. Listen, the blood of Jesus covers that blot, just like it does every sin. And so with every sin, what we do is we confess it to God, that we trust the eternal redemption that he has secured for us, that he's borne all of our guilt. And with confidence in Jesus, we go into the presence of God and we enjoy the fellowship that God has won for us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, that's, that's the only answer. That's the only answer to any sin. It's for all sin and all people in all places at all times. The only answer is the blood of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, when you, when you sin, whatever that sin is, and when your conscience rises up to convict you of that sin, you see, where do you go? Where will you go? Hebrews 9.14 is giving you the answer. The answer is to turn to the blood of Jesus Christ. Turn to that, that one cleansing agent in all the universe that can give you relief in life and peace in death. The only answer is to turn to the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we must see what the Old Testament regulations for worship teach us. They teach us that access to God is limited because of our sin and the stain of a guilty conscience. But then we must see the glorious truth of what Jesus has accomplished for us. That he's opened the way to the presence of God by securing for us an eternal redemption through his blood which purifies our conscience from dead works. And then third and finally, as we close here, we must also see what all of this now means for our lives and for our relationship with God. Because it's not just that our consciences have been purified or that we've been redeemed from the guilt of sin, but there's also a purpose to all of it. A purpose which is meant to glorify the living God. Now look at the end of verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So you hear there's a purpose to Jesus' redeeming work. Redemption isn't an end to itself. We're not given a clean conscience simply so that we can sleep better at night. You know, as, as is the case with everything in life, it all begins and ends with God. Uh, our lives are to be for the praise of his glory. Uh, we've been redeemed from dead works so that we can serve the living God. As Calvin vividly put it, we are not cleansed by Christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt but in order that our purity may serve the glory of God. And friends, the wonderful good news here is that this service we do to God is now done on the basis of a clean conscience. 
Do you understand how much of a difference that makes to how you relate to God? I mean, it's sort of like the difference of, 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 between serving a, a, a tyrant king compared to serving a loving father. You know, if you, if you serve a tyrant king, you're, you're serving someone who could turn on you at any moment. And so you know if you make one wrong move, you'll be condemned. And so what do you do? Well, you, you serve out of fear. And you, and you anxiously serve in such a way that you're constantly trying to prove your worth to show that you, you really do belong. But brothers and sisters, that's not how we serve the living God, who's our loving Father. Precisely because Jesus has dealt with all of our sin, we're free to serve God now without fear and without the need to prove ourselves. We're free now to simply serve him out of love and gratitude and adoration. Uh, you may find it helpful, in fact, to ask yourself, is that really the basis for why I serve? You know, do I, do I pursue holiness? Do I give up my time to the church? Do I try to share the gospel with my neighbors? Do I, do I work to help disciple other Christians? Not out of a, out of a crushing sense of obligation or a, a fear of failure or rejection, but do I serve because through the blood of Jesus, my conscience has been purified from dead works so that I can serve the living God? Or it may be that some of you look on your past and you think the sin of my old life is so great that I can't really ever be of service to God. But friend, do you see how that's a denial of the very truth of the gospel? I mean, do you or do you not believe that Jesus has dealt with all of your sin? Brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, we can live in confidence and joy before God. We can serve him gladly. We can enter into his presence and worship him. Indeed, with joy, we can live the whole of our lives for him. That is the great privilege Jesus has purchased for us with his blood. A conscience purified from dead works to serve the living God. And so, friends, I urge you this morning to turn to Jesus. You can't quiet your conscience in any other way. So turn to him this morning, receive the free gift he's bought for you at the infinite price of his life, the gift of complete forgiveness and cleansing. And then begin to love and serve him with all that you are. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you for your kindness in giving us these illustrations from the past to help teach us about Jesus and all that he's done for us. We thank you for the eternal redemption that has been secured for us because of his work. Lord, help us to trust that. Help us to believe that. We thank you for the, the resulting clean conscience that you give us, knowing that Jesus has taken all of our guilt and thus made it possible for us to enjoy fellowship with you, the living God. Lord, forgive us for, for taking that privilege for granted. Lord, for those of us who are maybe just weighed down by the sin of the past, would you, would you press these truths upon us? Help us to see, to understand, to believe what Jesus has done. Help us to live in the freedom of what he has done. 
Help us to serve you with all that we are and fill us with joy and gladness as we do it. Lord, we pray for those who have never known such peace. We pray for those who are out doing something else this morning. Maybe never stepped foot into a church and were weighed down by their conscience. Lord, would you convict them in such a way that you draw them to yourself, that they would see in Jesus righteousness and hope and salvation. And would you give them this peace? Lord, we ask that you would do all of this for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name.